0: All right, for this edition of Pacers Table, we are here with none other than Darnell Hillman, who made the trek down from the third floor into the studio to have this discussion. Darnell, appreciate it. Uh, we are honoring the players from the 70s, Saturday against Portland. You, of course, played here throughout the 70s. You're a member of two of the Pacers championship teams, so we got a lot to talk about. You joined a team, and uh, the 70 Pacers won the championship, the 71 Pacers, had the best record in the league, wound up losing to Utah in the second round. But you come in with George McGinnis the next year, and wind up winning championships your first two years. Um, we'll talk. Let's talk about those. You know, the first year against the Nets. Uh, you know, you play a, a, an important role off the bench, and the Pacers win that seventy-two championship in uh, six games. Seventy-three title. You were really part of your second year in the league. Um, the Pacers won 51 games, you started 52 of the 84 games that year, because Roger Brown's starting to break down. You kind of take his place in the starting lineup a lot of games. Um, In the, see the opening round against Utah, uh, you wound up starting at the end of that series and you had a game where you had 13 points, 19 rebounds and six assists. That is in game five. And you weren't a great foul shooter. You were 58% that year, but you hit two key free throws in the last minute for a big win there. And then uh, the Pacers won game seven here against Utah. People need to understand the Pacer-Utah rivalry was huge at that time. Utah had won the championship in 71. And uh, so in game seven, you started again, had 13 rebounds, and played great defense on Willie Wise. So you're really coming into your own here. And then you play Kentucky. Um I should add, that was actually a second-round series against Utah. But then you play Kentucky for the finals in 73, and you had some time off before that series, so Roger gets a chance to kind of heal a little bit, and he starts off starting in that series. But then he his back is giving out. He's starting to break down. So we get to, um, let's see, game four of that. No, let's go to game seven of that series is in Utah. And uh, it's 3-3. Three the visiting team's been winning like every game in that series, practically. We're in Louisville for game seven. Uh, the Pacers win it 88 uh, 81. George McGinnis uh, winds up with 27 points in that series, in that game, and uh, is the MVP of that series. But you uh, started, played great defense on Dan Issel. And Slick in the locker room after the game kind of points to there's the guy who won it for us, meaning you, you know, by the way you filled in, by the way you defended Dan Issel and how you contributed in that series. So that 73 playoff series must be at like the peak of your career. I mean, you were a vital part of a championship team then. Well, you know, and I appreciate your saying that. Um,
1: the 73 series, I kind of remember but I'm not real great on the details of that series. Um, I saw myself as a role player there, um, playing Dan Issel. And during that uh, time in my early in my career, I also gave Mel relief in the middle. So mm-hmm. sometimes I wound up having to play against artists. But we had a ball player on our team in the 73 series by the name of Gus Johnson. So Gus was able to take artists. And then my focus was pretty much a lot on Dan Issel, But sometimes um, I would get an opportunity. I had this thing about Artis Gilmore. Artis used to be a very, tremendous player. And my thing was I wanted to block his dunk shot. I didn't care about blocking his shot, but I wanted to block his dunk shot. So I was always trying to find a, a opportunity in the ball game where I might could get to him to do that. So being focused on Dan, that was really tough on when Mel was out of the game. Gilmore could have a easy time underneath. So several times I tried to sneak in there and, and help uh, Gus Johnson with him. And that was my thing there. So uh, the series was a, a good series, a well-fought series. Um, I just remember whatever Slick needed and wanted for us to win a championship because, again, As I'll tell you always, I'm a team player, and I was all about championships. It didn't matter who had all the points or who did what. Mine was just come out of here and win these championships.
0: Looking at the newspaper articles after that game, there was a quote from you saying, Before the game, we were very relaxed in the dressing room. It was surprising to be so relaxed, and I was wondering if we would go outside and do the job. But you saw it. We did. So do you remember – that feeling before Game 7 in Louisville of everybody being really relaxed? Uh, yeah, I do.
1: I, I, um, actually, uh, I was taken back by their being so relaxed because at the time before a ball game, I was very quiet. You know, Sometimes you see younger teams in a locker room and everybody's getting pumped up and all psyched up and ready to go and a lot of noise and cheering and jumping up. I'm the exact opposite. I'd be a wallflower. I'm focused. I'm thinking about the game. So seeing everyone else being in the same posture that I was in kind of made me wonder, well, okay, now, guys, this is normal for me, but that's not so much normal for you. You guys need to are get fired up out, here. Yeah, are we going to come <laughs> out of here red hot, or are we going to struggle and have to dig ourselves out of a hole? So I kind of kind of remember that. Um, interesting uh, time for us at Butt when the guys came out. And, of course, we were led by Freddie and Mel, and we got right after it. We yeah. understood what we had to do, and uh, Roger set the pace, and
0: we just took, took care of our business. Yeah, Roger came off the bench and had 10 points in that game. Um, All three Pacer championships were won on the road, so you have to do your celebrating among yourselves in the locker room. And I know in that case, you know, you're throwing Nancy Leonard in the shower and all the the front office people and media people are going in the shower. And then uh, you come back to Indianapolis a couple nights later and you have like a public dinner at the Coliseum where fried chicken was served. About 1,500 fans came. So what do you remember about the aftermath? I mean, what's it like – winning a championship like you did your first two years. And then, you know, what's it like in the immediate aftermath of that?
1: Well, immediately on the court, the celebration begins with the ball players, And one of our things was we had all of those doubters and haters about Indiana Pacers. And when we win the thing, especially on the road, it's like, see, we've been telling you. Now you stay away and watch what we do. So we had a, a nice celebration in the locker room. We champagne everywhere, and we had to get on the bus and ride from the arena all the way to the airport. We had a party on that bus. All the windows were open. We were screaming and hollering, celebrating out the windows. New York fans weren't too appreciative. It. <laughs> we get to the airport, we get on the plane, and we're celebrating on the flight back from New York. Equally as well, and I mean, we were celebrating. Now, is this plane. a commercial
0: flight? Or this we, is a commercial yeah, I flight. Say. Yeah,
1: was going to say. We even convinced everybody to get up, I believe, at one point and move to one side of the plane, and we all started bouncing up and down, and we had the plane kind of moving <laughs> in the air, and the captain comes over, the loudspeaker and says, I don't know what you folks are doing back there, but I'm turning on the fasten seatbelt signs, and I want you to get back in your seat. <laughs> so we had to sit down the rest of the flight. We arrived here at Indianapolis, and there are so many people in the airport that um, they don't let us off the plane. What they did was they brought sheriff's cars down on the tarmac, and we exited the plane and get in squad cars. We didn't even get to go inside to see those two or 3,000 people that were inside there at the airport. We get in the squad cars and red lights and sirens from the airport all the way to College and 38th Street. And we arrived down at 38th Street, and there's about five or 6,000 people down there for the celebration. So we had a big party out there in the street where the offices was at that time on 38th and College. And yeah. they had to close off the street in both directions because so many fans were out there. So that, for me, probably was a real, real eye-opener as to, man, what have you gotten yourself into? And wonderful that you made the right decision, <laughs> uh, I had I gone with Golden State, Golden State didn't win its first championship till 75. Right, right. So I got mine much earlier and back-to-back. Back. So I'm ahead of the game, I'm, I'm
0: thinking, hey, man, this is, it doesn't get any better than this. You must have thought, hey, this is going to happen every year. We're going to win a championship. And, uh, and it looked like in 73 when you won the second one that team was still fairly young and you and George were coming up. And it seemed like you guys could uh, have a dynasty there for a while.
1: Well, we had a pretty strong nucleus there at that time. Uh, I like to call us the Magnificent Seven. Uh, we had a basketball mate with that on there, and everybody's got an individual picture of us on there, and we're called the Magnificent Seven. Everything built around that after that was just gravy. If you got a chance to be on those, one of those two teams, you were on your way to a championship, which was one of the things that Slick did for Gus Johnson. Gus, in all the years that Gus had played at, uh, with Washington, mm-hmm. never got a shot at winning a championship.
0: Yeah, he was and an NBA so veteran. NBA he was doubles. at the very end of his career.
1: So Slick brought him in, and and we gave Gus his shot at a ring. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, having Gus here and watching him when I was a kid coming up and then getting to be on the same court with him and then watching to see just how effective he was. It's like, it doesn't get any better than this. Yeah. So for a youngster myself, I was just trying to take in as much as I could.
0: And he was like a player coach. In fact, there was one of those playoff games where Slick got kicked out at halftime. <laughs> yeah. And from what I understand, he like stomped his foot, and he was mad at Freddie over a turnover, and he stomped his foot and yelled, and the referee thought he was yelling at him. So the referee, that was Slick's second technical, so he kicks him out of the game, and Gus coaches the second half. <laughs> That's correct. That's yeah, how how like they didn't him, have an assistant he, coach. Yeah,
1: him, and, uh, him and Freddie uh, would work together and, and figure out what to do here, out there, and we, he was pretty effective with it. Mm-hmm. Now, Gus, um, he had this deep, deep voice. So when Gus spoke, you were going to listen to him. And then if you didn't want to listen to him, Gus was probably the – third or fourth strongest man in the NBA at the time when he played behind Wilton, Wes Unsell. Um, Gus could get your attention when he laid his hands on you. So guys listen to him and they this is what we need to do to win? Let's go out here and win it. Yeah. And we were pretty, pretty uh, good as a team. You know, if one guy spoke, everybody listened. There was never any animosity or anything. Okay, there's a plan. Let's give that a shot and see if it works. If it doesn't, we'll move to something else. So everyone had some input in and that was one of the, I think one of these strong suits about Pacers basketball early in that time. Slick could come to us and say, "Hey, what do we want to do?" And guys would throw out different ideas and things like that. Slick come back for the game plan and, and we would work on it. Yeah. So we always had some kind of input of what we were doing and where we
0: were heading. Mm-hmm okay well hey darnell appreciate your time we'll see you saturday night on 70s night uh you know you'll see a lot of old friends there Uh, we'll look forward to that evening i hope everybody can come out and uh that's darnell hillman got a great story one of the absolute most popular pacers of all time this is pacer sound (laughs) table Welcome to this edition of Pacer Sound. I'm Mark Monteith, and I'm here with the true Indiana basketball legend, George McGinnis. I and mean, here we're talking about a guy who was Mr. Basketball in 1969, led Washington High School to an undefeated season in the state championship, played a year of varsity basketball at Indiana University, earned All-America honors, and then joined the Pacers. He had the greatest single season the Pacer has ever had. Certainly one of the greatest Pacers of all time. His number is up in the Raptors here at Bankers Live Fieldhouse. So, George, first of all, thank you for coming down and talking with us. Yeah, no, no problem, Mark. It's a real pleasure to be here. In your rookie year, you became a starter later in the year. Right. And that year, um, uh, you played Denver in the first round of the playoffs, I believe. Um, Just to show people what the atmosphere was like then, in uh, game four in Denver, uh, you guys lost by 16 points. And here's what Slick Leonard says after the game. I'm sick and tired of what they're doing to our players, referring to the referees. And they can send a note to the commissioner and say if I get fined, he'd better get some better officials. And the ones who have threatened to go back to the NBA should go back. We can get high school officials that good. So, you know, that's slick. And, you know, of course, if you did say that today, you'd be fined, suspended, and all that kind of thing. But I'm, as a player for him, when he's talking that way in the newspapers and sticking up for you guys that way, what kind of atmosphere does it
2: create well he uh, he constantly preached the family you know we're all in this together it's us against the world you know just certain things that he would say let's walk out here if we're on the road in a playoff game let's walk out here like we own the place no tears no fears you know and uh, he just had a way about him that uh, you know he didn't take anything from anybody and he didn't want anybody Cheating him if he felt like he was gonna get cheated, he he let him have it. So it, it made you feel good as a player that this guy had your back. Yeah,
0: yeah, no question he had your back. Uh, you guys beat Denver. Uh, this is the seventy-two playoffs. You right. beat Denver in seven games. Then you beat Utah in seven games after being down two-zero and you right. won Game Seven in Utah. Mostly, we won Game Seven in uh, in Denver, didn't we? Uh, yes, you I did. We won that entire championship on the road. Most of the great pacer moments in history have come on the road it's just amazing people talk about home court advantage but you know you guys won all three championships on the road you like we just said you beat denver in game seven on the road you beat utah in game seven on the road then you play new york with rick berry for the aba championship in 1972 in game six you probably had your best game to that point 30 points i'm sorry uh, game three this is game three you had 30 points and 20 rebounds um the interesting thing about that team, though, is I've learned over the years, you had a – there's some inner turmoil. I mean, you had a couple guys on that team who wanted out. I mean, Rick Mount came out in the papers yeah. that year and won it out. And Netaliki, probably because he lost the starting spot sure. to you. Yeah. Uh, I know in the Des Moines, Iowa newspaper said, I want out of here. And yet, you guys managed to win a championship. I'm just curious what it was like well, as a know, member of that recalls, team.
2: Once we were in the heat of the battle, you know – They forgot about that, you know, and uh, when they did get in, I think they played hard and and they helped the team. But, you know, it's understandable. You think about Rick Mount, I mean, come on, he's one of the all-time great basketball players from this state. I've got so much respect for him. When he was on this team and I came in as a rookie and I saw him come out for practice the first time, I was in awe. Because as uh, sophomores in high school, myself, Steve Downing, and a kid named Jim Arnold, uh, we drove up to Lebanon just to see that sign says, Homer Rick Mount, because he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And uh, it was just uh, it was, it was an incredible moment for me to be able to get to know him. He was very inward. He didn't talk to a whole lot of people. So I walked up to him, and I said, Rick, I want to shoot your horse. And he said, uh, why? Excuse me, yours. You don't have a chance. I said, "Well, you never know." I said, "If you give me," and he just kind of blew me off, and I kept kind of nudging him, and finally he did, and it was over in seconds. (laughs) But it's one of the great moments of my life, being able to play horse with him. But he was he was tremendous. So I I I understand Mark how he felt. Uh, You know, he had been a star his whole life. you know, then he didn't get to play, he wasn't starting, so it was very difficult for him.
0: That was a team that almost had too much talent. I yeah. mean, you're talking about, first of all, three Indiana Mr. Basketballs. Billy Keller, 1965, Rick Mount, 1966, and you from 1969. Then you have Roger Brown, future Hall of Famer, Mel Daniels, future Hall of Famer, an MVP. MVP of the league, two-time MVP, Freddie Lewis, to me, one of the most underrated pacers, a great point guard. Neto, who was a Multiple all-star in the ABA. Uh, Darnell Hillman is on that team. So you're talking about a team overloaded with talent, and there were bound to be some guys who were unhappy
2: yeah, with their playing you know, time. Trying to find a right fit and time for all those guys was impossible. And, and, and Slick did a good job of it. But, you know, you can't make everybody happy. The bottom line is that team ended up winning the championship, and that's what it was all about. Absolutely. Now, uh, you guys won that
0: series in six games, but you did close it out in New York. If <laughs> Freddie was the MVP of that series, by the way. So the following season, the 1972-73 season, uh, Rick Mount and Netto, their trade requests were granted. They were gone. Yeah. So that probably kind of cleans up the roster a bit and puts the pieces in place. So you're starting with Roger Brown and Mel Daniels up front. Freddie Lewis is in the backcourt uh, with either Billy Keller or uh, Donnie Freeman, uh, whoever was the other guard. It was Donnie Freeman, yes. Yeah. And you really come into your own that year because you know you've got a year under your belt. You're starting all the time. You had a game at Dallas where you scored 58 points. You Just think if you'd hit your free throws that night. Oh you were 14 and 21 from the foul line.
2: Saying, if I was a halfway decent free throw shooter, I'd probably have a 1,000 more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you had 58 points in the game at Dallas. Um, now, you played Kentucky for the championship that year. It was a weird series for the championship because the home team lost four games in that series. And it was appropriate that you guys won Game 7 in Louisville to win that championship. Uh, you scored 27 points and were named the MVP of that series. Uh, I, I would think that has to stand out it certainly as one of your highlights, too. Yeah, uh,
2: great, a great moment, great memorable moment. Um, some, some I, I just got a radio play-by-play play of that game, uh, and the, also the championship game with the New York Nets the previous year, so you know the other day I went back and listened to it. It's so fun to go back and listen to it, and to hear yourself talk post game, uh, slick, and uh, you know he got on there of course, and he gave us all these pansies. We come in here and we kick their butt, and uh, it, it was great. But that's a very memorable uh, game. That seventh game beating Kentucky, and that series was it was a tough one.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, and the rivalry was great. Obviously, between the Pacers and Colonels, just a couple hours down the road, uh, you guys would bust down to the games. Uh, they would take fan, uh, bust loads of fans oh, down yeah, to the games. That was um, one story I remember from that game seven is that Roger Brown went down on his own. He drove down and in his
2: own he, car. In late. Yes, and he got there late. Slick wanted to absolute killing. We had to. Uh literally hold him back he wanted to just fight roger he was so mad and he didn't start him uh, right for the start of that ball game and uh and brought him in later on and we really needed him because he came in and made some big shots for us which roger brown always did yes he did and, uh, so it was uh, it was it was so much fun and that that uh, night at the hotel and the ride back home the next day was tremendous
0: yeah that, they, nothing better than winning a championship and getting to relive it with your teammates for a day or two while you're all still together. Yeah, You mentioned Roger scored 10 points off the bench that game and hit two big jumpers in the fourth quarter. And Darnell was big in that game because Mel got hurt and Freddie
2: Lewis got hurt too. So you guys had some adversity there. Darnell and uh, Gus Johnson uh, did an incredible defensive job on Artis Gilmore. He, Gus was uh, one of the strongest guys uh, I'd ever met. And, but he knew how to use his strength, and he handled Gilmore down low that just frustrated the heck out of him, but his game defensively was a, was a jewel for us.
0: I think you got a car, right, from Sport Magazine for yeah. being the MVP. What kind of car was it?
2: It was a Dodge. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Rick Smith, who's a car lover, and uh, it was one of these – Sports cars, but it was it would be. He said that car would be worth today a hundred thousand dollars. I ended up giving to it, giving it to a family member who really needed a car. And uh, but it was it was great. Sport magazine. I went to New York to accept it. Uh, 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 what's the football player played at the Texas? The Texas Rose. He won the MVP in, in the NFL that year, and he also got a car. So me and him were both up there. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't drive it at all, hardly, huh? No, I never got. I never, I never just... touched it. So I, <laughs> I ended up giving it to a family member. But I wish I would have kept it. Now
0: yeah, it would have been a great investment, wouldn't you? Yeah. You just never know those things in advance, though. Um, so then you guys came back uh, the seventy-three, seventy-four season and didn't win. The other guys, Mel, Roger, they're getting a little older. Things are kind of in decline a little bit. And uh, you tried to rally in the playoffs, but couldn't pull it off. So after that seventy-three, seventy-four season, they are sent. To uh, Memphis, they're traded. Uh, Roger Brown, Mel Daniels, and Freddie Lewis are all gone. So it's your team now. Going into the 74-75 season, you are without question the centerpiece of that team. At the time, did you kind of look forward to that? I mean, I know you were close to those guys, but were you excited by the opportunity to have everything kind of built around you?
2: Well, I kind of liked that, but I also worried about the fact that, you know, we had went to the championship every year for, Three straight years, I got spoiled, and now we're we losing our warriors. Mel, you know, Freddie, Roger, they were getting they had gotten older, and uh, so it was kind of like we retooled. You know, I remember Lenny Elmore being our center, and uh, Billy Knight's a rookie. Billy Knight's a rookie, and we had some other guys who were really good players, but had never played in the league. So, I don't think the prediction was for us to be uh, a real good team, but we jailed and, 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 and we got hot at the right time.
0: And yeah, you guys got off to a slow start that year, as you should have, given all the, you know, kind of like this year's Pacer team. Whenever you have a lot of new guys, it's going to take a while. It's tough for things to come together. Billy Keller was still on that team. You had Kevin Joyce, different guys. But, uh, you know, as I said in our intro, you had the best season a Pacer has ever had. You averaged 29.8 points, around 15 rebounds. You led the team in assists and steals and no doubt turnovers as well. (laughs) You did everything. I had the ball a lot. (laughs) (laughs) The offense ran through you, didn't it? (laughs) It must have been fun. Uh, You actually had your best season Shooting that year, you hit 35% of your three pointers. So everything came together for you. And, you know, this is a team that had a couple of five game losing streaks early on, but it all came together. You beat San Antonio in the first round of that playoff series in six games. That was one of the most emotional playoff series in the franchise history. They called it the Hang 'em High Series. And, uh, you know, there was a game in San Antonio where Slick went down and grabbed the timekeeper by his lapels and lifted him yeah, out of his chair because yeah. he didn't – sp- Pull
2: him over the, the, the scores table <laughs> try to, then he'll He, he had started n- the clock late on an out-of-bounds play, boy, and Slick just didn't like it, but it, it was uh, – It was memorable. That game was memorable.
0: Yes, and, you know, Slick, in his Hall of Fame speech, told a story from that series about you, about running over George Carl. Can you tell us that one?
2: Well, yeah, George Carl was one of the toughest kids I'd ever played against. He, you know, he would get in front of anybody. He'd take a charge and foul. Uh, You know, when you looked at him, he, he had nothing but scrapes and scars all over his knees. And he came from North Carolina, so usually most of those North Carolina guys were tough. But he had, a, he had an inner toughness that was incredible. But he had a tendency just to kind of run in front of you. And he did this a couple of times to me, and he flopped, you know, which really made me mad. And, uh, and I went to the ref. I said, hey, he's flopping. I said, now, you know, that's, that's not a foul. You know, and he says, well, you know, George, ran over him. Well, the next time we were on the court, I says, okay, we get a get the ball off of a rebound and get out on a quick, fast break, and I take off around the wing, and uh, there's George there's George Carl, and uh, they throw me the ball, and all I had to do was literally give it back to the other player for a lay-in, but I wanted to make a point, and I went into him, and I took him into about the third row of the seats behind one of their buckets, and I... Threw the ball to the referee, and I said, "Now that's a foul." <laughs> <laughs> you made your point. Yeah. You ever talk to George Carl about that in later yeah, years? I, or? I have before, but I don't. I don't talk to him too much now. But you know, I just, I just, I love him. I think he was, uh, he was a good guy, good sport. He's talked about that quite a bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, he he's good talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. He was a good competitor, and he a understood, you know, how things were done. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you beat Denver in the second round. Now we're talking about Dancing Harry being here. Uh, yeah, and then Denver, get this, the Pacers bring in Dancing Harry, who had worked some NBA games, was nationally known, and he comes in, he's putting, he's putting on a cape and putting hexes on the other team during their huddles. <laughs> he was a big hitman. He too, was. Man. He was hugely popular for a short amount of time. So Denver responds by bringing out a witch called her Robata,
2: and she would stand at your end of the court during pregame warm-ups just stare, stare at you. And stare you down, and yep. she watched the entire warm It was almost intimidating, you know. She had the, this makeup on, and she had this black hood, and she never took her eyes off again. She stared at me. Yes, yeah, so at you in particular. Yeah, it wasn't the other players. And so it almost got a little weird for me. I, You know, I said, man, I, you know, I hope she leaves but it went on the entire warm-up and finally the game started and I was over it. But it did kind of bother me a
0: little (laughs) (laughs) bit. Some witches staring at you. (laughs) Oh, it's just amazing. Obviously that kind of thing would not happen today. But you guys won that series in seven games on the road again. So what was it, again, about Slick that would give you guys the confidence
2: to win all these Game 7s on the road? Oh, I think it was Slick. He was innovative. He taken changed the whole offense for two of those uh, wins. On uh, it was, I think it was well, it was Kentucky and it was Denver that we played in seventh games. And he changed the entire offense. He flip flopped uh, in that particular game. Myself and Billy Knight, Denver had been pressing full court the entire series and giving our guards some trouble. You know we we're. You have us in trouble, turning the ball over, or not getting the ball over the half-court line in 10 seconds. So me and Billy would bring me and Billy Knight would bring the ball up and start the offense from 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 where we had the ball. So uh, it was things like that, and uh, you know, calling a big play. I remember um, we were in a situation in the fourth quarter, and um, he called the play for me. It was going down the stretch. And the play broke down, and Billy Keller ends up wide open. I hit him out in the corner, and he hits, a, he hits that three-pointer, never touches the rim. And it was a big shot, and I can remember going in the locker room, and we're celebrating, and Slick's going, where's the beer? Where's the beer? <laughs> and um, so we get in there, and the reporter's asking him, he says, boy, uh, Leonard, uh, that was a big play that you, that you ran for Billy Keller. You know, and it was just one of these plays that just happened. It was nothing that we ran. And I'll never forget Slick said to to the reporter, he says, well, Boys, sometimes if you're gonna be in this league you gotta make big decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and it was basically a broken
0: play. Yeah, exactly. Now wasn't that the boom baby game? Yeah. That was That's when Slick the first, first boom baby. Yeah, Slick yelled Boom Baby. Yeah,
2: it was the first time we ever heard Billy hit that shot and he came out of the seat and he jumped up with both hands and said, Boom baby.
0: <laughs> and that so, the rest is history yeah. regarding that. Right. And we should add that Denver at that time was coached by Larry Brown, the Hall right. of Fame coach. So, you know, you're talking about some serious chess right. games going on between yeah. coaches. Uh, so then, you know, this time the Pacers, rather than the odds-on favorite, are the Cinderella team of the ABA. And you right. play Kentucky. Um, and you lost that series in the finals in five games. They had a great team. And you were injured. I remember I've seen uh, game five of that series when they won it. And you're kind of limping around yeah. out there. Yeah,
2: I got, uh, I, had a, I had an ankle problem. I think I turned my ankle in the second or third game. But I played, played through it. But they were clearly the better team. They just had so much talent. And um, they had uh, uh, been to, I think, three finals or two or three finals and never won anything. So they were due. Yeah. And, uh, they were coached by Hubie Brown, who did a terrific job with them.
0: Yeah, they were building to that moment for like eight years, and they had Artis Gilmore and Louis Dampier, and I think Maurice Lucas
2: was on that team. or, well, or he wasn't, no. wasn't on
0: that team. He was with St.
2: Louis. Uh, they had uh, one of the Joneses. Wilbert Jones. Uh, Wilbert Jones, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, like you say, they were due.
0: Uh, and it was a great accomplishment for the Pacers, you know, wow. to uh, get to that point. Uh, but at that point, you know, look, the Pacers are really struggling financially. You were the co-MVP of the league that year with Julius Serving. I think a lot of people felt like you actually deserved it, but Julius had kind of the bigger name. He was sure. playing in New York. Yeah. He was the dunker, all that kind of thing. At the time, were you at all bothered by sharing the MVP honor with him? Or? You
2: know, I never really thought about it like that. I mean, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't consumed with so much individual awards because we were all just so used to winning. It was so much fun just to win as a team, and the fact that we didn't win but we so overachieved uh, that that team um, it was amazing. Uh, it was kind of the same atmosphere we had with the older guys who had left, that we came together and we were out there for one cause. And uh, it was was great. But, no, I I didn't worry about that. I mean, I thought I had the best season of of any player, but I understood the market and I understood uh, that, uh, you know, Julius brought light to that award, you know, by, by me being able to share it with him.
0: What did you get for winning that award? Anything in particular?
2: Did you, did you get another car? Or? Well, no, we got a trophy. You know, a Sport Magazine had <laughs> kind of given up giving cars away, <laughs> especially to the ABA. So I just got a little trophy for the for that.
0: I'm curious. At your house, do you display any of your hardware or memorabilia from your career, whether it's high school ABA? No, I don't
2: display anything at my house. I got a few things in my office. I got that MVP trophy. Um, Got a few things from high school, a few things from IU, but not much in my house.
0: Do you still have the net from your state championship? Yeah, Do you have a piece I of that, that net?
2: And I, yeah, I've got almost half a net from my high school game. and. Uh, that's one of my most prized possessions.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so at this point, uh, the Pacers simply cannot afford you. I mean, the market for your service is, is such that right. the Pacers are priced out of the market because of just the lack of capital the owners had. And you signed with Philadelphia, uh, probably tripled your salary or whatever. I don't it know. Did. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what's interesting looking back is that there seemed to be no hard feelings even from the fan base because they understood understood. you know nobody can deny a player the opportunity to increase his salary by that much Uh, you came back for an exhibition game the following season as a sixer which had to be painful for the pacer fans to see but even then if i remember right you got a standing Standing ovation
2: ovation yeah which is unusual usually when a player leaves a a team like i did you know there's some animosity but yeah, I think everyone understood the, front office, understood the front office, the players, and even the fans, which made me feel really, really good when I came
0: back yeah. here. And you were an all-star for a couple of years in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You wind up, uh, you played in Denver for a while for Larry Brown, and then you are traded back here. Yeah. Uh, Slick brings you back into trade for Alex English, and you finish your career here. Right. Right. Uh, you know, guys in your era did not play as long as today. I think you were 32 oh, yeah. when you had to yeah. retire. Yeah. And Eleven
2: years was uh, was uh, kind of the 11, 12 years was about it, for guys in my era. Guys didn't work out; it wasn't a full time, twelve uh, 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 month a year gig like you know keeping yourself in shape. You went to camp to get in shape. When I first came with the Pacers, there were five guys who had summer jobs, you know, working with t- television or working uh, in a factory. It was, it was a different time.
0: Yeah. What did you do in your summers, mostly?
2: Uh, yeah. um, I, I just rode horses and had fun. Um, but, you know, I just got away from the game.
0: As you look back, of course, nobody then was working out like they do today. But do you kind of think, man, if I could have done that,
2: if I could have worked out the way these guys work well, out we or whatever? Have our career for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No question. But none of these uh, – None of the things that they have, the technology that's that's been brought to the game and to working out, none of that was available to us.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's just a shame. But still, hey, you played a long time. You had a great career. Uh, you got a couple championships yeah. to your name. So, you know, that makes it all worthwhile, certainly. And not to mention the high school and collegiate accomplishments. Uh, the thing about, you know, the Pacers in your era that everybody talks about, uh, that you guys reflect on is just the camaraderie you had with your teammates. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned riding horses. Like, you guys would ride horses together. I guess you would ride motorcycles
2: together. Motorcycle, and Mel, got, be- Mel got everybody together because he loved horses. And he says, We all got to get a horse, it's so much fun. You know, I had never ridden a horse before. And we did it, and we loved it. Slick road, it, it was great. And uh, then we had uh, motorcycles, but we did everything together. Uh, our summers were spent together. The the stat crew would throw parties uh, once a month where we'd go over one of their their homes and just have a, a like a cookout. So it was uh, it was more of a family atmosphere. You know, everybody rooting for everybody. So it's a lot yeah. different than it is today. Yeah,
0: it was. It was just almost like a a family business in a sense yeah. that where everybody was really connected, including as you said, the stat crew and. In front office people and uh, players, coaches, everybody were together. Um, endorsement opportunities were not then what they are now for athletes.
2: Uh, no. Did you have anything going as a yeah. Pacer? I mean, Billy probably got most of the just local stuff. I didn't have any national endorsements. Uh, but uh, Gatorade, um, we were the first two basketball players to endorse Gatorade, myself and Billy Keller. It was uh, it was brought to Indianapolis by um, uh, well, the company Stokely, yeah. van, Stokely
0: van camp Stokely van
2: camp. Yeah, and um, he, he bought that and now you look to see what it turned into today uh, And and the, the advertisement we did was pretty neat mark it was a, a Gatorade bottle a quart bottle and it it imposed me and Billy Kind of leaning back on either side of the bottle and that was we did uh, that we did uh, big uh, billboards with that and then we made quite a few appearances for them and uh, that was just a little bitty company back then.
0: Yeah and you probably got really just a little bit of money too right? <laughs> yeah,
2: a little bit of money and then we had uh, deals with our sponsors uh, uh, you know gas was 70 cents a, a gallon. Uh, and we had uh, deals with the marathon and people like that, so it was it was good.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it was just an entirely different world. It's funny to look back at some of the game programs, what people were endorsing. You know, yeah. a, a dry cleaners, yeah. the, the Bonanza restaurants where you guys would go. Uh, Billy had some uh, not only the dairy association, but down um, uh, some. Uh, lakefront homes or whatever yeah, and it raccoon lake, raccoon lake yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. and uh, you, know, you know we did uh
2: we also were together we did a promotion for a motor home okay from, uh, on there and then, then uh and uh, me and billy got a motor home to share for, for so a nice years, so that was pretty
0: nice you good. had to share it though huh Yeah. good um let's see what the, you know what was it like i mean you're in your hometown you grew up in indianapolis you played high school ball in indianapolis you went to indiana university and then you're a professional basketball player you know leading teams to championships i mean that must have been just an incredible experience to be in your hometown where you're that popular and that good i mean it's i would think every day was just like a dream yeah well
2: and just think about how many players have had that opportunity to play your high school college and Pro career right here in the place that you were raised. It was it was it was incredible because you know not only that um, we have a rich basketball history, uh, but you know yeah, your family was there to, to support you. Your friends uh, now in today's game that's a deterrent. Yes, you know, it's it's a real deterrent. But back then it was a great support system for me.
0: I guess you probably did not have. The issues that today's players might have with all your high school buddies. George, George, can you give me tickets? You know, this kind of thing. And and never, never
2: like that. I mean, if, if uh, there might have been one or two guys, but, you know, they could afford a ticket. You know, jobs were plentiful and. Uh, uh, tickets were cheap. Cheap tickets were very cheap. Slick said, you know, the old saying, Slick said, you could get a front row seat at the Coliseum for $3 and a gallon of beer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Very affordable, a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, we could go on forever telling these stories, but um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. George, thank you for sharing your story, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. That's Pacer Sound. I'm Mark Monteith. Thanks for listening.